Uh, We thank you again for being able to sing of your love and your mercy and your grace. And I pray, Lord, that we would never lose sight of it, that we would never lose uh, sight of the reality of our need for it. And I pray now, Lord, that you would help us to hear, give us the ability to give attention to your word. And I pray you would help me to communicate it clearly. We thank you, Father, for the truths that we find in your word, and we pray they would change us and make us more like Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Just want to remind you that uh, after this series, this is uh, our last sermon in this series on last things or eschatology. Uh, I'm going to take from this series, go into starting next week, teaching Sunday school. Uh, We will springboard from this. There I'll be able to cover some things uh, that just in the course of a sermon series are just impossible to cover uh, more detail into some things. And so we'll look at that uh, in our Sunday school class. So like I said, this is the last sermon in this series. So let me just kind of review with you. Hopefully we can see the big picture together. We started out by going to the book of Romans and being reminded that the God of the universe has a sovereign design for human history. And that by that sovereign design, it is his desire to save people or redeem people by the gospel of Christ, to the glory of Christ, and that will result in an unhindered worship of Jesus Christ. But then we went to First John and we were reminded that there are forces that are out there that are striving against this sovereign plan of God. And that the church has always been a part of this struggle, those groups, those people who uh, the Bible describes as anti-Christ. And we know the Bible teaches that someday... There will be an apex to this struggle, a moment when the, a person will gather all the power, all the influence, and will seek to use that power and that influence to be or to present or to rally the world against Christ and his people. And then we went to the book of Daniel, and we're told that we can trust God even though we know there are times of tribulation and persecution coming. As we look to the future, as Daniel got glimpses of the future, a lot of what he saw would have been things that that terrified him. In fact, he goes through a process of even getting physically ill because he did not understand what God was going to allow to his people. But we are reminded again that we can trust the Lord and that we will not be left alone in the midst of those difficulties. And then last week we went to Revelation chapter 20 and we were reminded that ultimately Christ will be victorious over all the enemies of God's people. And we were reminded that all the promises that we read up to that moment when Christ establishes his kingdom, all those promises are sure and true promises, which means that we can look to Christ and we can find everything we need to endure. Now this morning, we want to continue But I want you to think about the fact that over this series, I hope you've seen what we talked about at the very beginning. That the subject of last things, the subject of eschatology is not there, it's not put in our Bible to tantalize us, to satisfy some curiosity, to perhaps calm our anxieties about the future. The things, the the, the last things in the Bible are about helping us to find the ways and to look to God for endurance through all the things that the the people of God will face. It's endurance. It's for comfort. It is to help us to go forward in all the times that we're going to grow weary. 
and all the times we're doing the right thing, where there is discouragement uh, aplenty. When, when the enemy is, is a, a, a full court press trying to get us to stray from following Christ, the last things, the study of last things, the subject of last things, is for those moments of weariness and discouragement and, and the temptations to wonder. For the last sermon, I want to take you to, uh, to the subject of what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. This is a moment that the Bible talks about. It's a fundamental moment, and it is the moment when Christ and his church are united for all of eternity. It is a fundamental belief. And so I don't say this lightly. If you are going to be orthodox, if you are going to be doctrinal, if you're going to be biblical, this is a fundamental understanding that Acts 1 tells us that Christ left, and Acts 1 tells us that Christ will return in a literal, physical form. Now, we do have brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with us as to how that will unfold, and that's, that's fine, but I'm saying the, the, the basic, the, the, the fundamental belief here is that Jesus Christ will return. A literal, physical, bodily, actual return. One of the places in the Bible where that subject comes up is right here in 1 Thessalonians. And there's a reason it comes up. The church in Thessalonica was a young church. And what I mean by that is not young people in the church. There may have been. But it was a church, uh, by the time this letter is written, that had not existed for very long. And one of the things that was unique about the church in Thessalonica is that pretty much upon its founding, it found itself being persecuted. The moment they became Christians, the moment it, uh, uh, they revealed themselves as Christian in a city that was clearly and almost entirely pagan, they faced tribulation, persecution, trials from the very beginning. And one of the things that was causing in this church was wondering one of two things, that perhaps... Because of the tribulation they were facing, it was all the evidence they needed that Christ's return was almost there. And so some of them, believing that, had stopped doing everything. Essentially, their day was taken up with sitting around and waiting because they were sure the persecution they were facing was evidence that Christ was going to come. But there's also evidence in the book that there were some who had begun to believe they had missed it, that Christ had already come. And so this persecution and the trials that they were facing was because they had missed it. And, of course, the text tells, or the book tells us, there were some who had shown up at the church in Thessalonica preaching that, that they had already missed the return of Christ. And there are still cults today that believe that the church has already missed it. And that the times and tribulations and difficulties we face are because we missed it. And so the Apostle Paul wants to respond and wants to let them know what is actually true. And while the Apostle Paul will affirm that the return of Christ is real and in in the biblical sense is eminent, he's going to remind them not just that they didn't miss it. He's going to take this opportunity to talk about this subject to show them what it means, what the imminent return of Christ means for the Christian. The fact that he's going to return, the fact that it's imminent, the fact that it's going to be physical, an actual return. What does that mean for the Christian? And that's the question we have this morning. What does this moment mean 
for the Christian. Number one, I've got three points for you this morning. Number one, what does the imminent return of Christ mean for the Christian? Number one, it means that Christians can grieve with hope. It means that Christians can grieve with hope. Verse 13, clearly the text says, but I would not have you to be ignorant. There's a change of subject here in what the apostle is talking about. Up to this point, the apostle has really been focusing on letting them know, again, as new believers, what kind of fruit they should be bearing. And the biggest one he keeps talking about with them is love. That one of the fruits of the Christian life is love. And so now he changes the subject. He wants to not just talk about life. He wants to talk about death. And he goes, I want you to know, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those which are asleep. Of course, the word asleep there is meant to talk about those who have what? Those who have died. It's a pretty common usage of the term. The Bible uses it to leave us or give us the impression that death is not permanent. Other than Rip Van Winkle, nobody sleeps forever. And so the idea is if we call death sleep, it's an understanding that death is just an intermediate state. It's where we get our term rest in peace. But the idea is, is that in a pagan culture like the Thessalonians were in, death was always seen as the end. It was simply the, the natural period on the end of the sentence that was your life. But I want you to note the way that the apostle puts it here. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. He says, but we, that we sorrow not or we grieve not as ones who have no hope. And there's an implication there, which is this. That even knowing truth does not remove the need or the, not remove the, the urge or the emotion of grief. Human beings grieve. Now, I've mentioned to you this, uh, I've said this to you from the pulpit a number of times. Death is unnatural. We were created as human beings to be relational. We were intended to have relationships. And death comes and creates a breaking of that relationship that was never intended to happen. But the Bible also tells us that death is something that was born out of the existence of sin. And so death is also the right and true and just judgment because of the existence of sin. But the statement here is that we grieve. The reality of death is grievous. It breaks relationships, of course, but it is a constant reminder of the reality and consequences of sin. This statement that we do not grieve as ones with no hope is really meant to just say, look, here is the balanced reality. And the first thing I would say to you is this, is is that we are not called to what is known as stoicism. It is to be unemotional or detached. Unfortunately, during my uh, four years at Northland, we actually had several students, people that I knew, that died from car accidents. And in most of those cases, after it happened and after the funeral happened and maybe just a little while after the event had happened, the parents would many times come and visit the campus. And many times those parents would get up in front of the, the, the whole school, all 900 of us, it would talk about what that meant for them. And I remember listening and being surrounded by, by Bible college and, and graduate study students. And I remember hearing 
criticism about the grief of those parents. The questions that were being asked was, well, those Christians or those parents, they're Christian. Those children, of course, they were Christian. How can they grieve like that? How can they be so upset? Aren't they they rejoicing in the fact that they're going to see their children again? The, The implication is what? That the Christian faces death without emotion. They're not supposed to grieve. But that's not the truth, is it? Because the text says here, we do grieve. We just have a a qualified grief. But I'd also point out to you that it also means that we don't face death without seriousness. We don't look as death, we, we are not to find death to be a friend. Now we can rejoice many times that death has perhaps ended somebody's suffering. We can go to a funeral and we can rejoice and be glad for the testimony of a particular individual. But at no point and in no place has God called us to ignore the reality that that person is dead because of the presence of sin in this world. And so we are neither unemotional or detached, nor do we set aside this reality. So what are we to do? We are to grieve as a people with hope. We're told our grief is to be contextualized and and moderated by hope. And hope has been a significant idea in this whole series. The fact that God is going to be, has a sovereign design for history that includes redeeming people all the way to the end is a reality of hope. The fact that the, the Antichrist will become the most powerful and influential person in human history, yet will continue to lose, is a hope. The fact that we will not be left alone in the midst of our trials and tribulations. The fact that the promises of God are true and sure is a type of hope. So what does it mean to grieve with hope? Let me just give you two applications. First of all, it means that if you feel grief and if you do grieve, it is not a spiritual failure. Remember earlier in the book, I said the first part of the book was really designated to talking about the fruit that comes from becoming a Christian. And the main one the Apostle Paul wanted to talk about was love. Well, love, or I should say grief, is a byproduct of having loved. I know there's likely coming a day when I won't have the health or maybe not the strength or for whatever reason, I will no longer be able to pastor whether it's here or anywhere else. And because I love what I do, there are going to be a moment where I'm going to grieve. And, and we have children who grieve over pets, even though we want to look at the pet and say, well, it's just a dog. They, they loved the animal. We grieve over health issues causing us to lose what we believe to be our usefulness. We grieve over broken relationships. And almost every adult here this morning has had to cross the line where they had to grieve the reality that a dream they may have had when they were young will never happen. So to grieve is not a spiritual failure. But the second thing that the Bible teaches us is that we have somewhere to go with our grief. Grief is heavy, it's difficult, but we have a place to go with it, and that place is to go to God. The Psalms give us a number of words for our grief. We have saints that leave examples of how to grieve. And of course, in the garden, 
Christ is described as being overwhelmed with grief and still prayed, Father, your will be done. We are a people that when we grieve, especially when we are grieving the loss of another believer, we grieve, but we grieve as someone who is sending another off on a long journey. And not that that is the end or that death has the final word. So, so the first consequence, the first reality of the imminent return of Christ, it means that we can grieve with hope. But number two, it means that our Christian hope, our Christian hope is our union with Christ. Our hope is our union with Christ. So here in this part of the text, the apostle is going to define the hope that he just mentioned. And the the thing that he does is he brings together two things, and that is the return or the imminent physical return of Christ and the reality of resurrection. He doesn't separate the two ideas because the doctrine here in the text, he's going to show why the two are united. There is no separation. For example, he says that, first of all, in verse 14, he says, for if we believe that Jesus died, stop right there. We just got done talking about the fact that human beings do what? What do human beings do? We all, we all die. And the Bible tells us that Jesus knows all of the temptations. He knows all the things that, that tug at our heart. And one of the things that Hebrews tells us is you and I and everybody in this room live with the reality that what is coming Death. And so Christ experiences death for us. But then the statement goes on. He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And what the Apostle Paul is pointing to, that is, Christ unites himself to us in death, and therefore we are united to him in resurrection. So if we believe that Christ died and we believe that Christ rose, then we have to believe the reality of resurrection for us. For we are united with Christ to such intimacy that because it is a reality for him, it is a reality for us. Not even death can separate this union that was created upon your salvation. And so we live with this permanent connection, this permanent reality. The fact that Christ has rose means that we will rise. According to verse 15, this is even, uh, it is contextualized as a promise from the Lord himself. Upon his return, those who have died in faith will be called out of the grave Given glorified bodies, the text says Jesus will come at the word of his mouth or at his command, at the voice of the archangel, at the sound of the trumpet. The dead in Christ shall rise. Now somehow here in the Thessalonian church, there were some who had come to believe that those who will experience the return of Christ would only be those who were alive when it happened. But the Apostle Paul is clarifying here, no, actually those who are dead in Christ will be, given, will be called up first. The dead in Christ are the first to receive their glorified bodies. And so what he does is, he, again, he's tying these two realities, the return of Christ and the resurrection together. And he is defining that reality as our hope. And so we have a question we have to ask ourselves in the midst of this series. 
If we're going to believe that Christ has the authority to unwind history as he commands, if, we want to, if we're going to believe that Christ has the authority to redeem people at the hearing of the gospel, if we're going to believe that at the word of his mouth he will defeat the Antichrist, if we're going to believe that at the command of his mouth the enemy will be chained up and thrown into a bottomless pit, then why... Would we ever doubt that he has the authority to command the dead to rise? We can believe all of those other things. But this is just as essential and just as real. At the word or at the command of his mouth, the dead, those in the ground. Let's make sure we're clear about this. In the ground right now, or their bodies have decomposed, or they perhaps have been incinerated in, uh, in other methods... The dead in Christ will rise. And we're told in all through the New Testament to look, to consider, to anticipate the coming of the Lord. We are to, in essence, to believe that in our lifetime, every Christian is called to believe in their lifetime that the, the, the return of Christ is imminent. Now, we don't know what day that is, but the Bible is clearly saying to us that every day that passes means that day is what? closer it is imminent and the point here is that not not that we get fixated like harold camping on trying to figure out what day that's going to be it is something that is meant to help us reshape and recolor the experiences we have in this life The point of the passage is that these things are real and that they're really going to happen and it dramatically changes how we grieve. It dramatically changes when and how we can have hope. And as we'll see in a moment, it's going to even change the way we live. So the hope of the Christian is Christ and the resurrection, our union with Christ. So number three, lastly, what is the implications of the imminent return of Christ, number three, Christians are encouraged by hope. The idea is actually not just to be encouraged, like to be happy, but to actually, the, the idea there is to be given courage. Verses 17 and 18, he says the word then, he's, he's moving on, okay, so the dead in Christ have been re- resurrected. Those who are alive when this happens are called up to meet the Lord in the clouds or meet the Lord in the air and always be with him. Now, one of the teachings, there are groups out there that, that take this text And they twist it to mean something. And I don't know if you've ever come across it, but it is quite popular. But that is the idea of soul sleep. It is the idea that until this moment, the dead remain in their graves, their soul in a form of sleep. But that's not the idea of the text. Let me explain this to you this way. The the Bible categorizes your Christian life. can put you in certain categories as to where you are in your Christian life. First of all, the Bible says to you that you're born because all humanity is under the wrath of God for having rebelled against him. You're born as a child of wrath. You are by nature an object of his wrath. That is your condemnation. But then upon hearing the gospel and believing, you now have your salvation. You move from being a child of wrath to being a child of promise, uh, adoption. Now you have an inheritance. You become a a child of his mercy and grace. 
And over your time on this earth, you are now from condemnation to salvation. Now you are processing or experiencing in this life sanctification. As Christ is, according to Philippians chapter 1, is beginning to do and continuing to do a good work in you. And he's going to complete it. And that sanctification is only perfected upon your going home, upon your death in, in heaven. Now, let me clarify this. The church has always believed in the existence of heaven. Of course, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, I don't know whether or not to die and go be with the Lord. That's one of our texts that tells us that upon death, the saint is with the Lord. But one of the things, as you've heard me say before, we have to be careful of is not looking at heaven as a final destination. The Bible clearly teaches heaven as an intermediate state. The final destination of a Christian. So let's just watch this. So you go from condemnation, salvation, sanctification. And the final stage of the Christian life is what? Glorification. You go to heaven. But there is coming a day, this day, right here, mentioned in the text. Where you will be given your glorified body. You will be given all the inheritance that Christ has bound up for you. You will receive all the reward of your life of faith. This is your glorification. This is the final stop in the Christian life. So whether we make it there, meaning we're alive when it happens, or we've already died, the reality of Christ's return brings with it an entirely new reality. And that reality is defined for us in verse 17. How is it described? That this new reality for the believer in this moment, in this glorification, is that we will always be with the Lord. From there on out, for all of eternity, we will always be with the Lord. The psalmist describes it this way. From there on out, upon our glorification, we will spend eternity experiencing the pleasures of God. And the final phrase, verse 18, comfort and courage, or again, the idea there is to give courage with these words. We've moved from grief to hope to courage. That whether we live or die, Jesus is our good Lord. During our time here on earth, he is with us. Upon his return, we are with him. And we're being told here that whether life turns this way upon you or whether life turns that way upon you, the fact it remains the same. Christ is coming, the dead shall rise. That there's nothing that's going to happen in this life, including death, that, do, that will change the nature of Christ. He is loving, he is good, and he is coming for his children. And whether we're in heaven or we're in the future paradise or whether we're right now sojourning here on earth, we are his. You imagine being a Thessalonian at that point. All the persecution, all the trials, all the difficulties, and wondering whether or not you missed his return. And the Apostle Paul is emphasizing and reestablishing, don't ever think that because you are his. But it's not meant to be a sedative. You're not supposed to experience grief or injustice or anxiety and just chant, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And that's supposed to make you feel better. As we saw in the opening text, this hope doesn't take away grief, but it contextualizes, stabilizes it. 
So we also now look at how it gives us courage. We're told as Christians at the beginning of the book that we're supposed to love. One of the fruits of the Christian life is to love and to love courageously. To face sickness and and difficulties and job problems and relationship problems with the courage of knowing that Jesus is our good Lord. Three pictures in the New Testament to consider. One of the pictures the New Testament uses to describe the Christian is as a soldier. And sometimes the troops need to be rallied, don't they? These are those words. The Bible uses athletes as a picture of the Christian life. And sometimes athletes need to be motivated. These are those words. And the Christian life is described as a farmer, a farmer who faces the temptation to think that all of his labor is for nothing. The farmer needs to be reminded of the coming harvest. These are the words for that. So Christians are people who grieve. We we grieve in the reality of sin and death, but we grieve with this hope. And this hope is this, that we are so united to Christ that no persecution and no death, no trial, no tribulation can ever sever that union. Which means that union is so close, the reality of our resurrection is just as a reality as his resurrection. And that hope of his return and that hope of resurrection is the basis of our courage. Whether we live or die in all that we face, Jesus is our good Lord. And someday we will be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the lessons that come from the reality of your imminent return. The reestablishment of your love that we already sang about this morning. The reestablishment of the reality of our union with you. And the reestablishment of the fact that you are our good Lord. And that we can take courage in whatever we face in knowing that we will one day forever be with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.